So we're going to look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 again. This week, uh, it's our third Sunday doing so, uh, third Sunday in Advent. Um, It's about 700 years before Jesus was born that Isaiah wrote this prophecy. Uh, He received word from God and he passed it along to the people, this word about the coming king who's going to set things right for God's people. Isaiah said that this Savior would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so each Sunday this Advent season, we're taking one of those names and we're seeing how it describes Jesus and uh, maybe describes Jesus in surprising ways. This way, uh, this week, we're looking at the third name on the list, Everlasting Father. And a few of you mentioned uh, this week actually uh, suggested this, this little difficulty that you have with it or suggested struggling with that name being applied to Jesus, Everlasting Father, uh, because Jesus is not the Father, he is the Son, right? He's the Son of God and not the Father. I'm sort of proud of you for having that struggle, like good Trinitarians. Uh, you're, you're having that, that struggle. You're right, the Son uh, is God and the Father is God, but the Son is not the Father, right? But, um, but if God wants Jesus to be called Everlasting Father, probably we should allow it. And uh, not only should we allow it, <clears throat> we should be eager to find out what he means by it. What does he mean? What does God mean when he says, uh, this is what the king should be called? And that king is Jesus. And he's the Everlasting Father. What does that mean? It's a remarkable name for the Savior. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. <clears throat> Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray for your Spirit's help, the help of the Spirit of your Son, Jesus, as we come to this word written about him so long before he came into the world, yet this word that describes him perfectly. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to hear about him as we hear this word, as we hear the gospel, the good news about him, and not just to see him and and hear about him but to to know him as he truly is and to relate to you through him. Um, We pray that you would change our lives by your word every time we read your word. uh, We pray you would change us from the inside out by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For... The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the 
increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the, the carol, Good King Wenceslas, which Berta and Tim played during the offertory. Uh, thanks, thanks for doing that. Um, uh, that's one of my favorites. It's 19th century lyrics uh, set to a 13th century tune. Uh, and it's a it's sort of a legend based on the life of a 10th century uh, saintly Bohemian duke. Um, and so here are the lyrics, uh, at least at the beginning of the song. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. And so that's the day after Christmas. And so it's winter in Bohemia, which is, I think, now uh, Germany. Maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> Somebody can correct me if, I'm, if they need to. Um, he looks out on the, the day after Christmas when the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel, when a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. So it's nighttime, and he sees a poor man gathering sticks in the snow. And he says to his servant, Hither, page, and stand by me, if thou knowest it, telling, Yonder peasant, who is he? Where and what his dwelling? And his page responds, Sire, he lives a good league hence. That's about three and a half miles. That's a long hike for a cold winter night. Underneath the mountain, right against the forest fence by St. Agnes Fountain. So the king says, bring me flesh and bring me wine. Bring me pine logs hither. Thou and I shall see him dine when we bear them thither. We're going to carry, we're going to carry meat and good drink and good, good logs. He's looking for uh, fuel for his fire. We're going to b- bring logs to him. So the rest of the song tells how the good king braves the dark and the cold of the winter night even sheltering and encouraging his servant, uh, the, the page, to join him in the blessing of this poor man uh, with these gifts. And it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story of a great king. Everybody wishes their king would be like this guy. Right? A great king who takes good care of his people. A good king like Wenceslas, at least how the songs uh, tell us, uh, a good king like him is fatherly. A good king is fatherly. He's moved with compassion to bless his people, protecting them from the cold and sharing uh, with them a feast of meat and wine in this case, uh, caring for their lives as if they were his own children. He sees this poor man out in the night and he's moved to compassion and to care for him like he's his own child. This is what kings and all those in authority are meant to be like. Um, And I'm sorry if you've just got like baggage about like nanny, nanny state taking care of all the people or whatever. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, kings and all those in authority are meant to care for those under their charge, like fathers care for their children. That's what it's supposed to be like. When God, who is the father of all life, God the father of all life, when he created Adam in his image, Adam was meant to be kingly and fatherly just like God was. In fact, in his case, all those under his authority, all those under Adam's authority, all those under his care, under his charge, actually were his literal children. (laughs) And he was meant to bless them and to cause their lives to flourish, especially their life with God. That's really what it means to be kingly and fatherly, like, uh, like you're made in God's image to do. 
to be. Adam made a huge mess of that, and all human authorities after him have made a huge mess of that. But God still means for those in authority to rule with fatherly care. In fact, one of the, one of the Ten Commandments, I mean, talk about big deal parts of the Bible, right? One of the Ten Commandments, uh, one facet of the Fourth Commandment on the Sabbath actually addresses this very thing. I'll read that to you in Exodus 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I mean, this commandment is saying if you're, if you're in a position of authority, it's not just that you take the day off and spend it in prayer and worship. You spend that day holy to the Lord. Keep that Sabbath, the joyful, the festivities of the Sabbath. It's not just that you take time off of work. You're to care for those under your charge and to provide relief and rest for them, to, to make it possible for them to enjoy Sabbath with God. To help them in their relationship with God. <clears throat> you treat even your servants, even the strangers, the sojourners who are within your gates, right? Those, those people who are strangers to you, who are within reach of your blessing. You treat them the same way you treat your sons and your daughters. And that is how you're going to be like the one who made you. God, the Father of all life. Because that commandment is about imitating God and being like God. <clears throat> and we hear that kind of fatherly authority. I mean, I hear it in the legend song about good King Wenceslas. <clears throat> but the gospel of Jesus Christ is even better than a legend. It's the story of the true king. It's a true story of the real king who's moved with compassion to bless his people, who strikes out into the inhospitable conditions of this world to keep his people from true harm and to provide for their eternal life. Jesus is the king of all the earth, is an everlasting father, and that describes his, his kind of kingship. So what does that mean? And how does he do this? When he, when he strikes out into the inhospitable conditions of the world in order to keep his people from true harm and in order to, to bring them true life and everlasting life, eternal life with God, being an everlasting father like that, what does that look like for him? What does it mean? <clears throat> In the context of Isaiah's prophecy here, which is our passage, God's people needed protection of a specific kind. They needed protection from their enemies. As a result of their own sinfulness, as a result of their own rejection of God's ways, a refusal to live with God and for God and like God, and as his people should, because of their sin, they were going to be attacked by the dreaded Assyrian Empire. That's what that's sort of the context for Isaiah's prophecy. And so what they were hoping for in a good king would be someone who could save them from things like Assyrian oppression. And in Isaiah's prophecy, we have deliverance from oppression. 
You have deliverance from oppression promised. It says in verse 4 of our passage, The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken. So since God delivered his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, God has been demonstrating that he is the kind of God who saves his people from evil and from oppression. He is the kind of God who will do that. But, but Egypt, as big a deal as that was, as, as global and as important and as central to the, the dealings of God's people throughout history as that was, Egypt was just a foretaste. Assyria and Babylon were just patterns. Even Rome, great and mighty and terrible imperial Rome, would be just a picture of the true oppression from which the Savior would ultimately deliver his people. As a result of our sinfulness, as a result of our rejection of God and his ways, it's not just that we're going to experience <clears throat> some kind of national oppression. Death itself is coming to get us as a result of our sin. Death itself is coming to attack us. Death has placed a yoke of burden on us. Death beats us over the shoulders like a slave driver. Death is the true oppressor of all of God's people. Death is that dreaded empire against which there's no protection. You cannot stand. Death is that dark, cold nightmare so fearsome that we can't even bear to think about it. There's only one man who could stare death full in the face, who could even bear to size it up and realize what it really is. There's only one man who dared to square up to it and actually succeed in sheltering his people from it. There's only one. And he's the king keeping his people from true harm like a good father would. Jesus did this when he went to the cross. He faced death and faced separation from God on behalf of his people. Not a single one of us will ever know the fullness of what that means. It's like a child... Growing up in his household with a good father doesn't know the hardships that his father might have spared the family from, might have spared us from as children. Not a single one of us will ever know the fullness of what it means that Jesus faced death on our behalf because he's borne the brunt of the storm for us. He's spared us because he's endured the nightmare for us. Like a good father sheltering his children from catastrophe, Jesus has spared all those who belong to God from eternal death and separation from God, from, from suffering that. He defeated death on our behalf by allowing himself to be swallowed up by it. And then by bursting its bonds apart from the inside by the power of his resurrection. And not only has he spared us from eternal death, he's provided for a glorious eternal life with God. Life with God. That lasts forever. Just as Adam, he's the father of the old humanity, an old humanity that's characterized by sin and fear and death, 
So Jesus is the father of a new humanity, characterized by faith and righteousness and life and peace with God. Just as Abraham was the father of all those who believe, that's what he's called in the scriptures. Not just the father of ethnic Jews, but the father of all who believe. So Jesus is the true author and perfecter of faith for all those who are being saved, those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and ethnic background. Jesus is the true father of those who will live forever with God. Humanly speaking, he's, he's the father of a new humanity. Those who will live with God, he provides for our joyful Sabbath with God. He's the human who is truly like God, created in God's image perfectly, reflecting that image perfectly. He's the human, he's the son who is truly like the father. He himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus is the source of our life with God because he shares his own life with God with us. He shares his own relationship with God with us. As a human being, he's the perfect image of his Father in heaven. As a human being, he's the living one who holds the power of the Spirit. And he causes us to be born again when he gives us his Spirit. Our King died, and he is alive forevermore. And all fatherly authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he gives us eternal life in his name. So he's the King of kings, and he's the everlasting Father. Better than Wenceslas. He doesn't have to ask his attendants. Remind me that one's name again? Not even about the least in his kingdom. He doesn't need the angels to remind him, who, who is this old woman again? Who's this little child over here again? He doesn't have to do that. He knows those who belong to him. He calls them all by name. They are precious to him. Every single one. He doesn't neglect a single poor person. It says in Psalm 72, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. He treats even the least in his kingdom like his own sons and daughters. And he looks to bring them true rest and relief in their distress. And he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. You're going to have a king. You will have a yoke on your shoulders. And either you're going to be ruled harshly by death, driven by the fear of death, or the Lord of life will break that yoke off your neck and give you his own, his own yoke. so that you'll be ruled by the one who's called Everlasting Father, who cares for you and gave himself for you. He's come for you, and he invites you to come to him for life with God. So let's go to him together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the source of our life with God, and you have treated each one of us uh, like a good father cares for his own children. And it's uh, marvelous in our eyes that you would do that for us. It's hard for me to believe that you would even know my name out of all the millions of your people who are uh, certainly more important than me and 
better Christians than me, stronger in faith than me. Maybe I'm counted among the least. Maybe we all here are counted among the least. Nevertheless, you know us. You know those who belong to you. You gave yourself for us. We have a real relationship with God because of you. You've been the very grace of God, the very eternal life of God come in the flesh for us. These things are hard for us to to believe and even to dare to hope in. But this is the resounding note throughout all the scriptures, that you are this one to us, that you do love us, that you have given yourself for us. You are bringing us to God. So we entrust ourselves to you. We ask for your Spirit's help to to entrust ourselves all the more and um, really, truly to find rest in knowing you as the everlasting Father of a new kind of humanity, one that lives with God. We pray that you would help us. We pray in your name. Amen.